Hello all, welcome to the Ex-Millennial Man Podcast, podcast for SeedSync.com. I'm your host, Artie Kulik, and with me, like I said, I'm tired of Ty shenanigans and everything, so I'm going to make him take a day off to talk about our next in the line of extreme sports, and that's Tina with tennis. How are you today, Tina? We're not talking about pickleball? <sighs> we will. I guarantee you we will one day very, very, very soon. Once never, the, never. Once they knock down our neighbor's house and build a pickleball court and we hear the clink, 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 clink. That's such an annoying sound. No, it is that time of the year. I was, uh, it was funny. I was taking our son to school and I was talking about how February is the, used to be the worst month for sports till they moved the Super Bowl to it, which I said I'm perfectly fine with. And I said, oh, I guess they do the Australian Open in February. But no, it's over. It's, it's over one. by the end of January. And it you, always starts uh, MLK weekend. And I always seem to forget that it used to start in, what, December or something. Yeah, that, they, used to, they used to play it like at the end of December, kind of over Christmas, and nobody ever went, which sort of makes Martin, which sort of makes Margaret Court's 95 Australian Open titles, somewhat less impressive. Yeah, yeah, a BS title. There's a lot of people on here that think a lot of Cardinals titles are BS, but that's another story. So let's... Uh, the Arizona yeah, Cardinals? Yeah. <laughs> titles, what titles? <laughs> um, so let's talk about... Uh, I mean, come on, there's only one Cardinals that people think of championship pedigree. Louisville? Sure as hell ain't in was and say it's not in Stanford. <laughs> so... I, not to get you Stanford. Isn't people. Ball State the Cardinals? I don't know. I don't even know where Ball State is. Muncie, where Jerry Gergich has his timeshare. Okay, I'll forget that again in a few in in a few minutes. So it's where David Letterman mm. went to college. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I don't I don't like David Letterman because of where he went to college. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, but he used to talk about it all the time. Yeah. So let's talk about the tournament itself. Okay. And let's let's start with the biggest story here, Djokovic. Now, what I read of as of today is he had a three centimeter tear in his hamstring. Do you know if that was like the whole tournament or just like was that late in the tournament? No, no, he started the tournament with that hamstring. Now, I have by no means understand anything. I again like Ball State. I don't think I could tell you where my hamstring is. Somewhere in my neck, I think, or something like that. <laughs> it's the back of your thigh. Okay. So yeah. three centimeters. Is that big? I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm an imperial house here, so I don't it's know. It's a little over an inch. That seems like a deal. Okay. So yeah. let's let's start there. We'll go to his legacy or whatever here in a moment. But this it's particular kind of turn- embarrassing for everybody he played except for a French, I think, qualifier named Quaco who is the only player that took a set off of him during the tournament. Uh, to be fair, I mean, it went to the tiebreaker in the last two with Sitsipas, so. So? Uh, yeah, at least he put up a fight. At least he didn't get, like, skunked or something. That's not a fight. <laughs> but uh, re- Did you ever watch Pete Sampras? <laughs> we'll talk. He wouldn't try to beat you until he absolutely had to. He'd wait for you to screw up, and then if he didn't screw Pete up. Sampras is. <laughs> and then if you didn't screw up, then he'd beat you. He wasn't going to expend extra energy trying to do it early in the set. Is he even in the top five of titles one? <laughs> so yeah, yes, uh, yeah, he is. Yeah. So, but let's let's just talk about this tournament in Djokovic. Is is this more impressive, or is it just he's this much better? He's this much. He is this good, right? I mean, he him with his hamstring tear, Rafa with his zombie foot. They're this good. 
I will fully admit, I'm probably more in tune to some of the Grand Slams as they come around with the Australian Open. It, I mean, I, I don't know. Kind of pops is. up out of nowhere. Yeah, it, right? it, it does. And it's also, look, I've, I pay more attention to the Australian Open than I do to the college football playoff or whatever the hell they call it right now. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of it is it's right there on the heels of the holidays and stuff. And then part of the issue you have, especially at the end of the college football season, is there's like five or six games every day. Whereas with the NFL playoffs, it's well now they're like super also with weekend bowl or game. Nobody cares. Well, yeah, I don't. I mean, I didn't even watch Purdue's bowl uh, game, and it was probably a good thing that I didn't. I don't but, think a lot of Purdue players that were there were watching yeah. it either. But, but no, with the Australian Open, kind of the same thing. It's after the holidays. There's matches on all the time. It's things like that. Also, I think with the men, there was quite a few that did not play. I mean, Nadal, I know, played, but was out. Yeah, he pretty. he was still, yeah. Everybody's new golden boy, Alcaraz. Yeah, he, he didn't, didn't play. play. Kyrgios didn't play. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is this, do we, I know the second half we'll talk about if he's the greatest Australian Open player ever, but come on, is it? That's going to be a pretty short discussion. Well, is this, though, honestly... Is this an impressive win, or is it just kind of like... Aren't you the one who always tells me you can only beat the players in front of you? I will tell you kind of an interesting stat. Of those three guys who each have 20 slams or more, Djokovic is the only one who's never won a slam without dropping a set. Nadal's done it a few times. Federer's done it a few times. Djokovic only dropped one set, again, in the second round to somebody nobody's ever heard of. But he did drop a set. So outside of Djokovic, is there anything to talk about on the men's side? I mean, Andy Murray playing 97 matches in the course of three days or something like that. Or I mean, <laughs> well, that's the only other thing, honestly, I can think of. Yeah, so I think what Andy Murray proved by playing 11 hours, knocking off Matteo Berrettini, which is not a small task, right, in five sets and then playing five sets with Kokonakis, proved that he's fit enough to play at the highest level. And that his hip is okay. You know, he's maybe not as fleet of foot as he used to be. I don't know if that's the hip or I don't know if it's that he's, you know, 35 or 36 or however old he is, right? You're not going to move like a 25-year-old anymore. So Now, I, we will talk, I think, a little bit later about the complicating factor in his third-round match, which was that he finished his second-round match at 4 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we'll get to that later. So let's talk about the women. I said this to you the other day, so you're already prepared for this, but I'm like, I've heard an awful lot about Jessica Pagula and Ahon Jabur, and I know Naomi Osaka didn't play this one. And uh, Well, she's pregnant. Well, yeah, but I think she announced that after she'd said she wasn't playing. Yeah, but it was like just after yeah. she announced she wasn't But I, I hear about all these people, and then I'm looking up here, and I got a Rybakina. Rybakina. Rybakina and Sabalenka. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're the ones that played in the final. And which a lot of people said is one of the that was best a really good match. matches ever. Outstanding match, yeah. So what, what is this about all this hype I'm getting from Coco Goff and these Jessica Pagula Let, and all that stuff? Let's take some of these people one by one. First of okay. all, Elena Rubacchino was your Wimbledon champion. That wasn't like in... Yeah, that doesn't count, though. Out of... Well, she didn't get any points, which is why she was ranked 22. But she did win Wimbledon and just... They made her play, I think it was her fourth round match or her fifth round match, either fourth round or, or quarterfinal, was the first match that she played on Rod Laver Arena. That's bull. You're Wimbledon, 
not not just a past Wimbledon champion. You are the current Wimbledon champion, and they're making you play out there. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's another one of those things about tennis shooting itself in the foot, right? What she's a very likable person. I mean, I she's. One of the cool things about this final is this very contrast of styles, right? You will never know how Elena Rybakina is feeling. You will always know how Sabalink is feeling. Well, you used to always know how Sabalink is feeling. So, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a really good match. It was power tennis, but enjoyable power tennis. And Rybakina reminds me a little bit of Lindsay Davenport in that very clean ground strokes, great serve. Doesn't move that well, but when you get up, when she gets up to the net, has pretty good hands at the net. So no, she's uh, she's a really fun player to watch. And Sabalenka, up until a week ago, was the best player to have never won a slam. It's either her or Karolina Pliskova, and so now I guess Pliskova gets that title herself. Uh, so I'm I'm but, going. But, okay, yeah, we can okay, talk about. So Jess Jess Pagula legitimately came in as a number three player in the world, right? I think I mentioned to you that I have a certain amount of respect for her because when your parents own the Buffalo Bills, you don't have to have a job. You don't have to work at Buffalo anything. Buffalo Bills, their, their team. They're an American football team. Oh, that lose in the divisional that's round. Right. Yeah, okay. That's right. To that's the right. Cincinnati Bengals. They're, they're, they're a football team that aren't as good as the Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but, but no, when your family owns the Bills, you could probably just, you don't really have to have a job probably, right? The fact that she went from being in the in the 50s to being in the top five in her mid-20s. That's work. That's not a product of natural talent and ability. That's a product of work. So I, I respect that. Owens Jabur was injured coming into this tournament. And again, the thing about Jabur's game is that she's always going to be susceptible to like what happened in the Wimbledon final where Rebecca blew her off the court with power. Um, just the way she plays, she's... Especially but on a fast surface, she's going to be susceptible. Why do I hear about them constantly? Yet well, you have a because Onjabur is delightful both in the way she plays the game, and I, it, she's creative. She's artistic in the way she plays the game, right? And she's also just a great personality. Plus, she's you know the first Arab woman to be in the top ten, which is I'm pretty incredible. Coco Goff, I think we should take a little step back. She's 18 years old just because you've been hearing about her since she was 14 doesn't mean she's been doesn't mean you should expect the same kind of results from her that you expect from a 24 year old okay mm-hmm. just you, acknowledge you still that somebody my question, is young though that you had in the final you had the greatest player and, to not win yet and the champion yet it's like the average fan is like well wait a second where are the players i well, hear I mean, about constantly and i'm going to tell you this this goes back to i mean this is a long time ago but golf was in the french open final you okay. can't say she's at 17 okay. you can't say she's underachieving i'm not i'm not saying she's underachieving i'm saying i think part of the problem with the sport especially on the women's side is they're so quick to try to anoint the next great thing that they're missing out the great players that are in front of them yeah, I mean, I do think that Rabakina and Sabalenka, both of them have, you know, great personalities. I mean, it's, I don't know if Sabalenka will be allowed to play at Wimbledon this year. She's Belarusian, mm-hmm. so we'll see. But Rabakina, one of the things I like about her is that almost graph-like stoicism. You don't know what she's thinking, right? She, you don't ever see the panic in her face. You don't see the joy in her face until after she's won, right? I mean... There are very demonstrative players that I enjoy. You know, I enjoy Angebur a lot. And then I also enjoy Rebecca for, for that reason, that she's very, very calm, very steady. 
Well, and is like a Suyantek is was the number one came in. I believe mm-hmm. I think she lost to one of the two. I think she lost to Rebecca. In a, yes. So, and a lot of people are like, oh my god, and I'm like, is she lost to the Wimbledon champion? Well, that's what I'm saying is <laughs> there's a, unlike with the men where Djokovic's path, let's be completely honest, is doesn't seem that difficult. The women still had a path to go through. I just, I mean, Djokovic beat the fifth seed in the semis and the third seed but in the come final. On, really, the fifth now, seed, the fact the that fifth it seed of the women. Could probably win the tournament. The fifth seed of the men, it's not winning the tournament. I mean, but that's isn't that just a testament to how much better Djokovic is? Well, <laughs> or how much how weaker the the field is? Perhaps. I mean, and you'll I, never know. Which again, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But I think that has to be taken into account. Yes, Federer is great. Yes, Nadal's great. Yes, Djokovic is great. But come on, I mean, that kind of dominance has to come with people for years said, "Well, Serena didn't play anybody, and when she did, she lost." They said that for years against her. And we don't dare say that against those three men. I don't think that Serena ever had the same kind of automatic dominance that Djokovic had. Okay. I don't remember that many tournaments coming in where I would have picked Serena over the field. Even if Serena was like the 30% favorite to win, she wasn't like a 70% favorite to win. This tournament, Djokovic is like an 80% favorite to win. Nadal in years past, we'll have to see how he is this year, but Nadal at Roland Garros, 90% favorite to win. Djokovic at Wimbledon this year, I'm picking him over the field. I don't remember. Serena was great, but she was never like this. She wasn't. No. I I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Serena had a year like this. She's had two years like this, but she was never like this for a decade. Part of what made Serena great was her ability to sort of come in and out. I'm not disputing yeah. how great Serena is. I'm just saying that she did not have a lock on a tournament like like this. So let's assume, moving forward, that obviously Wimbledon's way down the road, but you have the French Open coming up. You have this is the time I think we talk about this every year. This is like the longest period between any two majors, mm-hmm. and there's some big tournaments in in this like period here. Mm-hmm. So with that, with the women, are we going to be looking at come? Come mid-May, are we going to be looking at Sabalenka and Rebecca? I'm never going to say it right, which is sad. It's like my heritage. But anyways. It's not that hard. Uh, no, but it is. It is. It is if you do, if you choose not to learn. Yes, so. That's true. <laughs> so, um, that's the American way, damn it. <laughs> are we going to – I assume we're going to continue to talk about it because these are not two women that came out of nowhere. They're, yeah, I mean, Rebecca is one of the biggest – one of the best servers. Not one of the biggest. One of the best servers out there that's not as important on clay mm-hmm. it's the reason pete sampras never won the french open right it just the serve doesn't do as much damage on clay so going into roland garros no but i think rebecca has a real shot at indian wells and at miami you know indian wells may be a little bit slower but at, at the hardcore tournaments the serve still do some damage there but uh, a um, few months ago we we're talking about suyantek being the undisputed number one yeah she won the is French that, Open and the U.S. Open. Is that not the case anymore, though? Oh, I think she's the favorite going into okay. Roland Garros. Yeah. Okay. She's, our, she's won the French Open twice. She plays very, very well on clay. Okay. If Jabur is healthy, I think she's there. Goff, again, went, made to the final. Goff can play on clay. Goff, her problem is her forehand. The good thing about Coco Goff, since, you know, you seem to consider her a disappointment at I didn't 18 say a disappointment. Old. I say I hear this crap all the time. 
Then all of a sudden I turn around and in the finals I see other people. Goff has an obvious weakness. Mm -hmm. It's the forehand. But you can get better at things. And if she gets better at her forehand, she's going to be a lot better. Because right now you can tell that people just pick on the forehand because people know it's the weak side. So You got to remember, I represent the dumb American audience, which we'll talk about that in the second half too, mm-hmm. why the American audience is so dumb. And this this is part of it. It goes back to, God, what's her name about her stupid dress at the freaking U.S. Open they kept talking about. And it's like... Yeah, where or even here to talk about the greatest uh, himbo of them all, uh, Roddick, and is like who stole his mojo, and he's out in the first round. <laughs> I, mean, I was in New York <laughs> for that tournament. And I remember seeing the subway after, and I went for middle weekend after he had already lost, and seeing that plastered all over. Oh, I felt bad for him. So that, that's but he fine. can at least laugh about it. He he, he has a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Before we move away from the tournament, anything. So else? anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think you have a few favorites for for Paris. I think maybe I, I would say maybe maybe Shantek. Who knows what's going on with Simona Halep? I don't know. Wasn't there some mixed doubles lady? You were all like, "Oh, good for her." It wasn't her at her last tournament. Oh, two. So Sonia Mirza, who was the number one ranked Indian woman ever in singles, and then had a bunch of injuries and played most of her career as a doubles player. Won a few slams with Martina Hingis. She retired. She made it to the mixed doubles final. Mm-hmm. And uh, so pretty good last tournament. And then Sam Stozer, who uh, retired as a singles player last Australia, I think, actually retired and stopped playing doubles at this tournament. So speaking of doubles, mm-hmm. Barbara Kajikova and Katarina Sinyakova have now won, I think, seven Grand Slam doubles titles in the last two or three years. They've won the last four they've entered. And they couldn't, I think it was the French Open last year they couldn't enter because Krajikova had COVID. But, I mean, that's that's, that's pretty good run. Well, there's your doubles minute on the podcast there. Uh, <laughs> so last question I'm going to ask before we take a break here is, and again, I'm the dumb American audience watching. If you had to rank the, the majors by watchability, is this the fourth one? Is this the least watchable one? For, no, I, for I an American audience, yes, because it's on in the middle of the night. Well, that's, yeah. Right? I mean, Eastern time, we live in Eastern time. The day session starts at 11 a.m. local time in Melbourne, which is 7 p.m. here, which mm-hmm. means I know I am watching the first, maybe the second match of the day, and that's it. Unless, as we'll talk about, one of them does not finish until noon local time. But we'll talk about that after the break. Hello, all. This is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about another podcast that I do work on called High Heels in Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed a lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of this state, She's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because she talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Uh, Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested 
Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested or know anybody that may be on High Heels in Politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. Okay, Tina, off mic, we were kind of talking here, and I was saying how when you go into Google and you type in, you know, whatever, and it gives you all the top searches. Like, I know if you type my name in, there's a couple of people's magazines, Sexiest Man Alive, that you'll see up there. Mm -hmm. But then they always have, like, other things. Is that like the Donald Trump on the cover of Time kind of thing? I don't know what you're talking about, but (laughs) anyways. They always have, like, other things you might be interested in. And obviously, this is a sport, so they have, like, players. And it says here on the right side, so other choices. It's got tennis player, tennis players, Australian Open. And it's, again, I'm looking right at it, front page. It's got Novak Djokovic. Makes sense. Uh-huh. Nadal, okay, he won it last year, and he's, you know, still a pretty big. And he even played in the one this year. Mm-hmm. Then they have Ashley Barty and Roger Federer. Yeah, two of those people are retired. And Federer hasn't hasn't played it in a couple of years, from my understanding. It was the last mm-hmm. major he won in 2018. Okay. God, that seems so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> Remember back. He won it two years in a row. Remember 17 and 18. That's 17. The 17 tournament, he played Nadal in the final and Venus and Serena played each other in the final. That was the one where Serena was pregnant. (laughs) And back then we were like, man, the future looks so bright. (laughs) And I don't mean tennis future. I mean real future. And here we are. And now I'm watching shows about mushroom zombies and not being able to sleep because it's just too real to me. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, I, I'm still Did waiting. Did we think the future, that was like right around when Donald Trump was inaugurated? I thought nothing was going to get worse than this. That's true. Okay. So, <laughs> um, anyways, so. We've now mentioned him twice on this yeah, podcast. Yeah. So, Sorry about that. So let's talk about what we left off on. Andy Murray. Yeah. Now. I know you've always got a soft spot in your heart for Andy Murray. I've always liked Andy Murray. I do. Just, I think, he seems like just a good dude. He, I, he He's very woke. He's feminist. He's his mother's son. Well, I feel like he's going to be the the Pete Best. Or let's say let's say he's the, um, God, what's his name from Genesis who went out on his own. Why can't Peter Gabriel? Mm. We recognize Peter Gabriel as a pretty good singer, but nobody remembers him being with Genesis. So, and I'm not saying Genesis is some kind of great band, but I think we look at, uh, my point is. Genesis uh, is okay. Well, I'm making a long, long trip to get to somewhere really shortly. But I think we look at Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic as the band, and Murray's just this dude on the side, Well, which is unfair. A lot of people, you included, Mm want to lump him in with Stan Wawrinka because the only thing you're looking at is Grand Slam titles. Stan Wawrinka's got three. And Murray has three. (laughs) And that's like saying that Andy Roddick's career is the same as Thomas Johansson's career. No. (laughs) (laughs) Because they each have one Grand Slam title. So let's talk about Murray and let's talk about just the way Australia does this anyways. Well, the U.S. Open does this, too. So they're just lucky that this hasn't happened. But why is Why is this? What is going on? What we're talking about is Murray goes out there, he plays some massive five-setter. Yeah, so the first match he played, you and I actually watched the first two sets of that. He was playing Matteo Berrettini because since he's not seated, he sometimes gets the misfortune of having to play Matteo Berrettini in the first round. 
He won the first two sets. And after that, I said, I'm going to bed because it was like midnight. I said, I'm going to bed because either he's going to win it or he's going to lose it in five. And I can't handle the emotional toll that's going to take on me. And it's going to be like three o'clock in the morning local time when that happens. Okay. So I get up in the morning and I see it did go five, but he won in five sets. Why couldn't he have just won in three? Anyway, (laughs) whatever. And then I'm like, okay, two days later, I go to bed before his match with Kokonakis starts. And I wake up in the morning and check the scores. And it's like in the first set or the first set is just ending. It's like eight o'clock in the morning here, which means it's midnight in Melbourne. Right. And so I'm working and I sort of have it on in the background a little bit and kind of monitoring what's going on in the background. This match ends at noon. It goes five sets. It is the longest match Andy Murray has ever played. And this is a man that is kind of famous for grinding out long matches. It's almost a six-hour match, and it ends at noon here in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, which means it is four o'clock in the morning in Melbourne. That is ridiculous, and it is foreseeable because they start they start the night session at seven thirty at night or seven at night, and they have a women's match and a men's match which means that you might have eight sets, right? And it's not inconceivable that eight sets take eight hours and then you've got some time in the middle for potty breaks and warm-ups and things like that, right? So it was an entirely foreseeable circumstance that eight sets of tennis start to finish could take nine hours, and it did. This is absurd. I'm not saying that Murray would have won his third round match against Batista Agu, but he would have had a damn sight better opportunity to do so had he not gone to bed at 6 a.m. And and who's up in the middle of the night, even local time? That's Australians aren't watching that match, except for the intrepid several that stayed in the stadium, which, you know, good on them. They had actually stopped serving food. I mean, now that is an absurdity, Yeah. right? If the match is still going at 4 a.m., you need to, what if you get hungry? I think part of the problem is you're getting, especially in all But again, the U.S. Open does the same thing, night session with a men's match and a women's match on Arthur Ashe Stadium. And those matches regularly go 1.32 in the morning. Why is this sport being played in the middle of the night? Because you're getting these trust fund marketing kids, these trust fund kids who are marketing and they, sit, they they outthink themselves is basically what you do. This is a problem, I think, across all pro sports. The people that are running pro sports, running tennis, running golf, running um, NFL football, running uh, European League soccer or whatever, Premier League soccer. Right. Uh, you can read this everywhere. The problem is the people running the sports never played the sports. Well, it's not even that. It's that they want for for the Australian Open, the U.S. Open here in Cincinnati, right? They want to sell tickets to a night session separate from the day yeah. session. Okay. But for the night session, you have to get your money's worth. So there has to be two matches because what if one of them stinks? What if there's a withdrawal? What if, you know, it's... <laughs> Either stop selling nights. Well, okay. Either play one men's match if you're one best of five match, or two best of three matches, 
right? But you cannot play a best of five match and a best of three match. It's even worse when they do it the other way around, right? And the men play first. What if they don't finish till one o'clock in the morning? Now you have the women going on court at one o'clock in the morning. It's it's just, you can't do this to people. These are finely tuned athletes. They need recovery time, especially an old man with a metal hip needs recovery time, right? He was back at the tennis center at like one o'clock. He was back like way earlier than I would have been back. So, because not only yeah. it's not just four, it's not like four o'clock you finish the match, he has to go home, right? He has to do a massage, he has to do a stretch, he has to do an ice bath, whatever he's going to do. He has to go to press and talk to them for a while, and then he gets to go home. No, and same thing with Kokonakis, except Kokonakis well, lost, so yeah. he didn't have to come back yeah. and play again. It's it's absurd. You can't do this to people. Well, speaking of absurd, let's talk about ESPN's green screen and the way that it just seems oh, like God, that was I awful. Mean, you're talking about not just the number one. That's what people don't get. The number one tennis audience on the planet is still the U.S. market. The number one, the most lucrative. Well, yeah. yeah. So, what I mean, look, I know that everybody has problems with ESPN, but my God, they were just mailing this one in. I have discovered, and now this is me being a tennis nerd, right? I have discovered since we got the Disney Plus bundle that had ESPN Plus in it. I remember when we got that, I'm like, who the hell wants ESPN Plus? And then I discovered that during the Grand Slams, you can go to ESPN Plus and get the world feed coverage of any court you want. I don't have to listen to John McEnroe. I don't have to listen to Chris Fowler. I can listen to some world feed commentators like Jill Krabus or Laura Robson or Shanda Rubin, whoever, and I can watch whatever court I want without constantly flipping back and forth between let's go to this court. Ooh, this one's in a tiebreaker. Let's go over there. I can just watch a match that I want to watch, including doubles and mixed doubles. I can watch wheelchair tennis. So I will say for anybody listening to this podcast who really, really likes tennis, for the $10 that you will spend for each month the Grand Slam is in, ESPN Plus is totally, totally worth it. Having said that, ESPN showed almost none of it on actual television, right? On actual ESPN, ESPN2, usually tennis is on ESPN2. They didn't show any of it, apparently, which I didn't know until I heard people complaining about it on Twitter, that people were looking for the Andy Murray match. What are they showing at 10 o'clock in the morning? Sports Center? It's not like they have a conflict. You can put that match on. People will watch it. It was really exciting, right? And Andy Murray's a bankable star, right? He's a name. I don't get it. And then they also, the only people they had in the stupid country were Renee Stubbs, who lives there and was playing in the Legends doubles. Darren Cahill, who also lives there. And Pam Shriver, who was there because she was coaching Donna Vekic, not because she was doing work for ESPN. All the rest of these people covered it from Bristol, Connecticut, in front of the worst green screen I have ever seen in my entire life. It was ridiculous. It was disrespectful. ESPN is partly to blame, but Tennis Australia is in Craig Ty. A lot of people say that Craig Tiley ought to be fired. He ought to be fired for agreeing to this crap, right? Because... ESPN outbid Tennis Channel. They outbid Amazon. So Tennis Australia got a big check. But at the end of the day, that big check, if it loses you fans because people can't watch it, nobody is just casually flipping through channels anymore. Let's see what's on ESPN. No, right? you, yeah, you're. Tennis Channel can't show, so they're showing some stupid pickleball tournament, probably. 
the health of the sport depends on fans and American fans. This is still the richest media market in the world. If American fans, ESPN actively tries to make tennis difficult to stumble across, right? It's great if you're like me and you just go to ESPN and watch it, ESPN Plus and watch it there. But if you don't know that you want to be watching tennis, you are never going to run across it, which means that nobody is ever going to Thinking about Carlos Alcaraz, right? How much of a joy he is to watch. Or even some of the big American stars, right? Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafoe. These guys are so much fun to watch. An American fan is never just going to stumble across it randomly and see it. So how, how are they going to get interested in the sport? So if Tennis Australia or the All England Lawn Tennis Association or the USTA or whoever, if they don't insist that Anybody who holds the rights has to actually show it. The sport's going to die. Well, it's, I don't even so much to say the sport's going to die. The Australian Open's going to die because it's just going to become this audience is going to think the tennis season runs from mid-May to mid-September, which is how I view it, which leads me actually to the next thing. You talk about this uh, United Cup. Yeah. and Great idea. There's, there's all sorts of little things that tennis has that it seems only tennis people know about. Whereas, as we record this, the NFL is starting their revamped stupid Pro Bowl with two... It's better that it's flag football. Well, yes, but the fact is one of the AFC quarterbacks is Tyler Huntley, who threw two touchdowns all year. So <laughs> Against the Cincinnati Bengals? It might have been. But, <laughs> um, but anyways, it's so but they, they still they have their thing. Everybody knows what the hell the Pro Bowl is. Everybody knows about the MLB All-Star game. Why don't more people know about this United Cup? Well, this was the first year for the United okay. Cup. First well, of all, what right? is it? So so but it's a great idea. So there used to be a thing in Australia called the Hotman Cup, which had one, one of the things that tennis has going for it that almost no other sport has is that men and women play the same tournaments at the same time. In a lot of places, like they're they're getting even the Masters 1000 tournaments, they're starting to combine them like they combine Cincinnati. Right. So you're starting to get a combined event more and more often, which is great, because as we were talking about off mic during our break, sometimes a men's game gives you dominance and the women's game gives you a lot of different winners. And that can be kind of fun. You get kind of the best of both worlds. Right. And you also get mixed doubles. People love mixed doubles. I love mixed doubles. It's really fun to watch mixed doubles. And you you get that. So tennis has this very unique thing in that men and women play together on the biggest stages together, right? So what the Hopman Cup was, was it was one man and one woman from a country would form a team and they would each play singles match and then play mixed doubles match. And then that went away. And then you had the ATP started this thing called the ATP Cup which was countries competing against each other, but it was ATP, so it was all men. It's countries competing against each other. It had ranking points involved, which, okay, if not everybody can participate based on their ranking, I don't know how I feel about that, but okay, whatever. So you had that, and then this year, they got together with the WTA, as they should. The, the WTA and the ATP should work together more often. And they created this thing called the United Cup, where they had teams from each country – and they would play two men's singles matches, one men's or two men's singles matches, two women's singles matches, and then a mixed doubles match. Great idea. The U.S. won it, actually. The first ever United Cup, the American team won it. Now, 
couple of issues. They had this incredibly confusing format where they were playing round robins in three different cities and then the winners of the three cities and then the next highest ranked team got to go to the semifinals. Stupid. Just do it in four cities and expand your field. So I thought that was dumb. The other thing that they did that I just don't think they should do is put it before the Australian Open. Now, I understand they got a lot of players to play because because of the round-robin format, you're guaranteed a lot of matches, right? Whereas if you're just playing a tournament, you get, you get bounced in the first round, there goes your warm-up for the Australian Open. I, I get it, right? But nobody's – it's also in Australia, which, again, for the largest media market in the country, in the world, and in the country that, again, won it this year, can't watch it because, again, it's on in the middle of the night. So – Here's what I think they should do. I think they should keep the United Cup. They played all the singles matches first and then just played the mixed doubles as a, and then, you know, played the mixed doubles as the fifth rubber, which means that it's often going to be a dead rubber, right? And then just doesn't get played. But again, people love mixed doubles (laughs) because you get weird pairings like Jess Pagula and Francis Tiafo playing mixed doubles together, right? So they should make, they should play one men's match, one women's match, and then play the mixed doubles as a third rubber and then play the other two singles matches. That's what I think they should do. I also think they should put it into February. They should play it like now because it's a dead time until Indian Wells. Well, the the Pro Bowl though. Yeah. (laughs) So, So this is a dead time until Indian Wells. So they should do it now Instead of cutting the off season even shorter, right? Do it now and they should do it in South America. And the reason I say that so selfishly, if it was in South America, I'd be more able to watch some of it. That's part of it. But the other thing is there are a lot of tennis players from South America. Brazil had Guga Kerton. There's been several good Argentine players. Several Chilean players have been, have been good and successful. Put one in Latin America. And there's no major tournaments there. There's not even a Masters 1000 tournament there. I think the Cincinnati Western and Southern Open might be the closest Masters. Oh, maybe Miami, I guess, the closer. But, I mean, there's there's no big tournaments in South America. So put a big event like that. You grow the sport in South America. Get people excited about it. Well, they should. They put, should make me commissioner I of say, tennis. They should. They should. So let's end this on last year you had, and we're talking about the men mainly here. Last year, well, the man only on it, you had Nadal win Australia. Mm-hmm. Then he won uh, he won the French Open. Mm-hmm. And then Djokovic, who could not play in Australia, could play in the French Open. Yeah, lost that great semifinal to yeah. Nadal. I yeah. mean, that was a really good yeah. match. But then Djokovic wins Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Can't play in the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. Alcaraz wins the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea, especially with Alcaraz, okay, maybe somebody's coming. And maybe these guys who we were talking about three or four years ago who were in their young 20s are now into their mid-20s. And now you get this tournament, and nobody can touch, touch Djokovic. And we have – I guess my point is we're looking at 15 years now yeah. of essentially these three men featuring Andy Murray in – you know, kind of doing this is, I mean, do we just need to now give up on Sitsipas and Zverev and all these guys? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. There's there's this lost generation in tennis, right? Yeah, but that was the generation and before. that was the generation of like Thomas Burdich. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> Delpo, Chilich. Now I'm talking about the guys that actually won tournaments, right? No, but they won one. Right. So, yeah, there was, there was that lost generation of Grigor Dimitrov, right? It, 
there's this generation of guys in their late 20s and early 30s who they're getting toward the point where they're starting to think about how much longer they're going to play, right? And now you have, again, Team and Medvedev, these guys want. So the U.S. Open is seems to be the tournament that somebody else is going to win, right? That's the one Chilich won, <laughs> right? That's it's the one most likely for Djokovic to hit a ball person, though. So. Yeah, right. But, you know, yeah, so Team won that year, then Medvedev beat him. And then, you know, last year Alcaraz won. So you do get some kind of different winners. But yeah, so you, but you have like Zverev and Berrettini and Sitsipas, and they're still young guys, right? They're not old. They're but, still young, but they're I mean, in but, their mid 20s now. And Berrettini's made a final. Sitsipas has made two. Medvedev's made three and actually won one of them. And the two he lost both won five sets. But. <sighs> Yeah, but now you have Alcaraz, right? You have Yannick Sinner. Isn't there a couple of Americans who are not terrible? There's Well, the American men did very well in Australia this year, and not Tiafo and Fritz, not the two that you expected to do very well. But there are two of them, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Taylor Fritz is still like 22, 23, right? So he's in that same age bracket with Sissipas and those guys. But there's Alcaraz, who's 19. The only person who's beaten Djokovic in his last, Six or seven events, he's lost one match, and that was to Holger Runa, who's 19. So are Runa and Alcaraz now coming up? And are they gonna are they basically gonna create another lost generation? I I don't know. I don't know. It's I mean, it is wild to th- so I think and there was a big four. This is why I push back on the people who say Warinka had an equivalent career, right? There was a time from about twenty. So you're telling me Rorinka's the Pete best? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> Does that make Murray the Ringo? Yeah, Murray's okay. a Ringo. Probably be upset that you're comparing him to an Englishman, but <laughs> I kid Andy Murray. But from about 2010 to 2016. Is Liverpool really England, though? <laughs> it's not Scotland. <laughs> no, it's... From 2010 to 2016, you had this... If you look at a guy like Thomas Burditch, right? And you're like, well, Burditch wasn't even making semifinals. No, because you had four guys that were clogging up the semifinals the entire time. For those six years or so, those four guys were the top four players in the world. And to get a sniff at a Grand Slam title, you're probably going to have to beat two of them on the way there, right? I mean, I don't know that we're going to have, you know, a similar dominance from... I don't know that Alcaraz and Runa are going to perch themselves at the top of the top of the heap. And I, I don't know, but let me ask you this. This is where we'll end it. If, if you're Stefano Tsitsipas, you took two sets off of Djokovic the last time you played him in a final at Roland Garros last year. This year, you didn't take any sets. This year, you got beat straight sets. Do well, you feel like you're losing ground? That's what I'm going to ask you. Not Nadal, not Djokovic. Give me a name. Who you would not be surprised if they won the French Open? Tsitsipas. Over Maybe. Alcaraz. Oh, yeah, Alcaraz. I forgot about Alcaraz. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of sight, out of mind with tennis, right? Because I thought he was some like genetically engineered super Nadal or something. Oh, no, he plays more like Federer. Oh, uh, okay. He, he does. He plays more like Federer. But again, Federer for a long time was legitimately the second best player on clay. He just kept running into the first best player. <laughs> no, so Zverev, 
until he exploded his ankle last year, was playing remarkably well. He can play on clay. Sitsipas is very good on clay. I, I mean, the clay lets him cover his backhand a little bit. But then if you had to take the bet, Djokovic and Nadal against the field, are you taking Djokovic and Nadal? I might be taking Djokovic. Hmm? Nadal looks old and broken down. He looked old last year. He did. And he won two of them. He did. <laughs> and, and he might be out to prove something because, you know, Zverev said, I think Nadal's going to retire after Roland Garros, which Nadal was like, excuse me? Uh, so he he might be out to show him. All right. Uh, no. <laughs> all right. Well, till then, <laughs> till then, we'll take the, the hiatus here. And I appreciate you coming in for my month of extreme sports doing – Pro wrestling, American gladiators, and now tennis. Now pickleball. So, this, this is the third. This is the second straight week I've talked about tennis because on American Gladiators, I talked about that kick-ass gun they shot tennis balls at those. Schlubs oh, I remember with. that. Yeah, that. That was thing, good. That they rock nitro just like sitting said, behind. <laughs> how long? In, how long until we're talking about the pickleball grand slam? I will. I will never. By the way, you're gonna have to find somebody else to do that. I d- this is the ex millennial man. We don't do boomer crap, and that's boomer crap. <laughs> So, all right. So, where are people going to find you, Tina? You can find me at Tina Seedsing on Twitter. Yeah, with that, yes, I said it last week that Ty and I were going to talk about how the Bengals are going to win their first Super Bowl. I might have to wait a year on that. So, uh, we'll we'll see. Probably not going to be discussing that. And I don't want people yelling at Joseph Osai. He he feels bad enough. It's not his fault. <laughs> no. I mean, but I saw somebody it's say it's your fault. Well, yeah, because I was awfully boastful, like our mayor. Yeah. Difference is, I'm not on TV. Travis Kelsey wasn't yelling at me. He no. could have been, though. I said the same crap. But, uh, yeah, it's it's it sucks. But, I mean, my God, I had to tell our son the other day, you don't get it. You don't get the fact that you live in a town now where we're expected to go to the AFC title game. That's not the Cincinnati way. <laughs> I mean, we're getting into a baseball season where I, we I may be here the— during the Achilles Smith years. <laughs> so, so I'm like, you don't get it. You're, you're, you're growing. This is old generation yelling at the young generation. You don't know what it was like. You don't know about Vontez Perfect, and you don't know about Pac-Man. Pac-Man. <laughs> you just Chris Henry, yeah, yeah. Carson oh Palmer's knee. Yeah, you just don't know. So with all that being said, we thank you for your ears. Anything else that you may use to listen to the Ex-Millennial Man podcast, remember we're here every Saturday for free, wherever you find your fine podcasting shows. And I'm going to miss you as you go up the stairs, but I'll see you in a few minutes. All right. All right. Talk to you next time. The Ex-Millennial Man Podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.